It is very encouraging to see what God has done in and through Freedom's Church in the last year. And uh, 2014 was certainly a year where we saw him do a lot of neat things. And I think it's important not only to give praise to God, but also just to express thanks to the Freedom's family. Because in order to see cool things happen in our midst, it requires the work not just of one or two or ten or twenty people, but the work of the entire church family. We are a body of Christ, and for the body of Christ to function well, it takes each part doing their own work. And so I'm very thankful, you know, just speaking for myself and my family, to be able to serve God alongside of you here at Freedens. And we're looking forward to seeing what God does in the next year and certainly beyond that as well. Now, I want to rewind the clock a little bit as we begin our message this morning back to 2004, specifically to February 4th, 2004, which to me is a very significant day. Now, February 4th, 2004 does happen to be the day that a Harvard student named Mark Zuckerberg happened to launch a website called Facebook. But that's not why it's so significant to me. February 4th, 2004 is really significant to me uh, because it was a Wednesday morning. And on that morning, I picked up the phone and called a young woman named Shelley Bergs. And I asked her if we could get together sometime. I'd gotten to know her over the previous year as we both were leaders in our church's college ministry, and I wanted to pursue a deeper relationship with her. And so that night, we met, we talked, and that launched the relationship that led us a number of months later to our marriage. Now, we will always remember December 18th as our wedding anniversary, but there would be no December 18th if there wasn't first a February 4th, February 4th. Because that February 4th and that conversation in which we talked about pursuing a different relationship or a, a deeper relationship, that was what got the ball rolling towards marriage. And that's the way it oftentimes is in life. That there is some event or some request or some asking of something or someone taking initiative that gets the wheels turning to move things forward for something good to be accomplished. In the Bible, in James chapter 4, verse 2, it says, you do not have because you do not ask God. You do not have because you don't ask God. And so this is definitely talking about prayer. And I think that we would all recognize that prayer is valuable and prayer is important. But if we're honest with ourselves and others, we also recognize that prayer at times is a struggle. Because we want to pray, we want to be consistent in making prayer a big part of our lives, yet at the same time, we struggle to really have a life of vibrant prayer. Yet we come back to a passage like James 4, 2 that says, um, uh, you do not have because you don't ask God. And I think it begs the question of, are there things that we are leaving on the table? Are there things that we are missing out on that God has planned for us, he wants for us? that we don't experience simply because we are not pursuing them or because we don't ask God for them or because we are lacking in some way in our prayer lives? I think this is a question that we need to seriously consider. And that's the question that we're talking about today. It's this topic of prayer. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. We're in a series right now called Life in the Kingdom in which we are walking through the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon of all time, in order to understand on a practical basis what does it look like to live our lives with Jesus as our king. And we are actually very near to the end of the series. After this week, we only have two more weeks left. And then we're at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, But today we're talking about this topic of prayer. So before we dive in, I'm going to pray for us. Father, we thank you that we can approach you 
come uh, confidently into your presence without fear or trepidation or, or fear of condemnation or judgment, Lord, but we can bring our request to you. You invite that, and we are thankful for this, Lord. Yet we also acknowledge that we at times struggle to be faithful in praying. And I pray that in our time together today that you will work in our lives through your word and through your spirit and um, that you will challenge us and convict us and teach us and encourage us, Lord, to make prayer a bigger part of our lives because of how prayer connects us with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite you to follow along as I read Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, where Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And so the point here is relatively straightforward. Jesus is saying that we should pray to our loving Heavenly Father, and he will respond. It's about prayer. And he starts off with a series of three parallel statements. Ask, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Like I said, they are parallel statements. Jesus is saying the same thing three times, just using a slightly different wording. And I think the reason he's doing that is this repetition just helps drive the point home, helps us remember. He's saying, you know what? Pray your loving Heavenly Father, and he will respond. And we see throughout Scripture that prayer is really, really important. It's very valuable. We are called to pray in all kinds of circumstances. For instance, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So we see in this circumstance, rather than worrying or letting anxiety eat away at us, take those things that we are concerned about, lay them at God's feet through prayer and trust them to him. And then he will guard our hearts with peace uh, that transcends all understanding. So we see prayer is important when we are worried. We see in Ephesians chapter 6, similarly, it says, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So here, Paul expands it to say, you know what, not just when you're worried, but about anything that comes to mind, pray in all occasions, all kinds of prayers and requests. So pretty much everything is fair game for taking to God in prayer. And prayer is to deeply permeate our lives because in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul says, pray without ceasing. Pray continuously. And we see a, a, a command like that, and it can be very intimidating because it highlights our weakness in really following through on this, our struggle, because we think, okay, I struggle to pray even just like five minutes a day, and you're saying I should pray all the time. What does that really mean? How does this work? Well, the bottom line here is that we do see that prayer is important. We are called to ask our loving Heavenly Father, and He will respond. And as we go on through this passage, Jesus is talking about how God is a good Father who gives good gifts. He, He uses a word picture here. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, we'll give him a snake. 
And so this picture, Jesus says, picture a parent and a child. And he's talking about, okay, the, the child asks the parent for fish or bread. And, and, and in that culture, fish and bread were really the standard meal for people there in the region of Galilee where Jesus did most of his ministry. And so Jesus is saying, if you're a parent and your child asks you for some fish or, or some bread, you're not going to pull some sinister trick on them and give them a rock and say, eat this rock. Or you aren't going to do something even more dangerous and give them um, a dangerous snake. No, I mean, that's not even funny. A good parent will provide their children with what they need, bread, a fish. And he goes on to say, if you then, though you are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. Now, I think, I think it's important to, to dig in a little bit in what he's saying about evil here. What, what Jesus is doing is giving a bit of an overstatement. It's a rhetorical device that would be common back then just to, to really state a point. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, you human parents, you are sinful. Now, you, you aren't perfect. You try to be good parents, but, but you certainly don't have it all together. You make mistakes. You are sinful um, you know, even though you're sinful, you still know how to give, give good gifts to your children. How much more will our good and perfect Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who also ask him? Now, as we're talking about this idea of um, prayer and of our good Heavenly Father who we should take our prayer requests to, I think it points to the importance of, of analyzing our mental picture of who God is, our mental picture of who God is. Now, I'm not saying that we have some physical image that comes into mind because God is spirit. He doesn't, I mean, Jesus, um, when he became God in flesh, took on human form. But God himself, I mean, we shouldn't necessarily have this physical image in our mind. But still, what is our perception of who God is? This is a very important question. I think of A.W. Tozer, who was a pastor and author in the mid-1900s. He says, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because your perception of God will shape pretty much everything else you do in life, particularly how we approach him in prayer. Because we will frame our requests to God in a way that, that, that indicates what we think of his character and how we think he is going to respond. Let me give you a few examples of this, uh, just using, continuing the idea of a father and a, and a child. Imagine you have a father who tends to be very stingy, very angry, even abusive. How is this that, that father's child going to bring requests to the father? Probably isn't going to do it all that often. And when, when that child does bring a request to that angry, abusive, um, stingy father, odds are good uh, the child's going to bring the request with a sense of fear and trepidation because he's worried that, you know what, is his father going to lash out at me? Is he going to verbally abuse me or physically abuse me? What's going to happen here? And so there's a fear of bringing the request before the father. But God is not stingy. He's not an angry or abusive father. And let me give you another picture. Imagine you have a father who is very extravagant with what he gives, but he's not very thoughtful in what he gives. And so in this circumstance, you have a child who knows that whatever he asks, the father is going to give him. And so he just goes, um, not just confidently, but even arrogantly demanding that the father gives him things. 
Well, that's not the appropriate picture either because God is very extravagant and generous, but he is not thoughtless. He, he exercises wisdom. And so imagine this third picture of a father and a child where the father is kind and gentle and wise, perhaps firm at times, but still kind, gentle, wise. Think about what it would be like to be a child of that father, to bring requests to that father. That sort of child would probably feel freedom and even joy to bring requests to the father because the father enjoys fulfilling the request but also exercises the wisdom in order to know when it's appropriate and when it's less appropriate to respond affirmatively to that sort of request. And so at times, a kind, caring, gentle, and wise father will say no. But the father delights to say yes when, he, when he's able to as well. But as we think of this idea of saying yes and no to requests between parents and children, I think we also have to look at it from the child's perspective in terms of how if a parent says no, many times the children don't really understand that and don't like the no very much, do they? I think of how when I was growing up, I really, really wanted a Nintendo you know, a video game system. Uh, they had just come out when I was young. And I really, really wanted one. My, I, I kept petitioning my parents to get me a Nintendo, and they kept turning it down. I would go over to a friend's house. They would have a Nintendo. And any time I would go to a friend's house who had one, I would instantly be drawn right to it. Now, my friends may have gotten bored with it by that point. They want to go play outside, but I want to keep playing Nintendo. And I would keep doing that for hours on end if I could. I got what I called Nintendo thumb, where with the controllers, your thumbs get kind of sore and get little indentations from the little buttons. But that's what happens. I mean, you, you get obsessed with that type of thing. And I kept asking my parents, can I have a Nintendo? Can I have a Nintendo? And they kept saying, no, no, no. Um, and at the time, I was very frustrated with that. But looking back... I am very thankful that they kept declining that request. Now, I'm not trying to say there's anything evil or inherently wrong with, with video games, uh, but I'm saying that for me, I'm very thankful as I look back that my parents didn't say yes to that because part of it is I know my personality. I know if I get excited about something, I get obsessed with it, sometimes to an unhealthy degree. That is why I don't play fantasy football anymore. Because the one year I did, I became incredibly obsessed with it. And now I have to distance myself with it. And it would have been the exact same thing with video games. And I'm very thankful that instead of investing hours upon hours in video games, I was able to invest my time in things like reading books or magazines or playing outside or building things or even spending time with family. But at the time when my parents said no, it didn't make that much sense. I didn't care for it that much. And that's oftentimes the case. A child has a very different perspective than the parents. And the parents ideally and normally have a lot more wisdom and experience that they are applying and making decisions. I think now that I'm a parent, um, think of my relationship with my children and some of the, of the requests they make. My children, um, there are times when they want to run away from us and run out into the road. Now, any good parent knows you don't let your children run into the road. But, you know, a kid struggle with that sometimes. And so it sometimes makes them mad when we say, you know, you have to hold our hands when crossing the street or hold on or don't run out there. It's not safe. It makes them upset. But we all know you don't run freely in the streets, especially without looking both ways. Or I think of our daughter, Tehila. She's turning three tomorrow. There's something about her refrigerator that somehow when she's like within a three-foot radius of that refrigerator, it just sucks her in, and somehow she has to open that refrigerator door and start climbing inside and pulling everything out. 
I don't know why she does it. Um, maybe just because she can. But she does that, and I think if it was up to her, she'd leave the refrigerator open probably all day long. Um, unless the door got in her way and she had to move it in order to get by. But you know what? I don't think it's a great idea to leave the refrigerator door open all day long. But when I tell her that, she throws a fit. Because you know what? Parents, children have different perspectives. Our kids like to play in our van after we get home, say, from a shopping trip. We're unloading the van. Kids play in the front. They're turning on all the lights and switches and pushing buttons and stuff. Well, a couple of months ago, Micaiah, our son, he asked for the keys. So you know what? You're kind of limited in what you can do in a van without keys. I mean, you can't turn on the radio. There are other switches that don't work. He wanted the keys. I said no. He threw a tantrum. It's not that grave an idea to give a little kid keys. Because you know what? Odds are decent nothing terrible is going to happen, but it certainly could. It's not wise to give your kids keys. But again, this illustrates how sometimes wise, kind, caring parents say no, and it's really in their children's best interest. And so that's the type of God that we have, that he is a kind and a caring and a gentle God who's also wise. And we come to this passage and we see this picture of God as a loving Heavenly Father who we can come to freely. And what a beautiful thing it is to be able to come freely and confidently to God. Now we need to make sure that when we are coming to God that we aren't coming flippantly or arrogantly because we have to remember God is a holy God. He is glorious and we should not take for granted this freedom that we have as sons and daughters of his to come into his presence. Jesus is the one who makes it possible in the first place to come into his presence. I think of Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Uh, the author of Hebrews is using a lot of imagery that would have been very familiar back then when they worshiped God through a temple and with the sacrificial system. The imagery may not be as familiar with us, but I think the general point is still relevant. Picking up in Hebrews 10, verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. And it goes on from there. But it's talking about drawing near to God with full assurance, with confidence. This most holy place was the most intimate presence of God on earth. Most people could never enter there in, in their entire lives. It's a room in the temple the, the high priest could enter there once a year. And even that was with great fear and trepidation. But now, because of Christ, we have the freedom to enter the presence of God anytime we want to with confidence, with full assurance that he will welcome us. And that is the mentality that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 7, that we can come freely into his presence. Now, what a beautiful thing that is. And one of the cool things here is that Jesus says that when we bring our request to him, he will answer affirmatively. He, he, he loves to say yes to our prayers. And it's such an amazing thing when we do see answers to our prayers. I think of how uh, there's a story going on in the news uh, over the last month or so that came out of St. Louis area. A uh, 14-year-old boy named Josh Smith was walking out on a frozen lake with two of his friends. And they fell through the ice. Two of his friends were able to climb out very quickly, but Josh Smith did not. 
Divers came in to try to look for him. About 15 minutes later, they found him on the bottom of the lake. They pulled him out. Paramedics were there. They started CPR right away. They took him to an emergency room, continuing CPR. They continued CPR for 45 minutes and still no response. They finally decided, you know what? There's nothing we can do. He's gone. So they called in Josh Smith's mom into the room just so she could say her final goodbyes to his body and just to give her the bad news. When she came in, the first thing that she did was start praying out loud. And she, she was just praying, God, I don't want to lose my son. God, please bring my son back to life. Restore his life. Let him keep living. And within moments of when she began to pray, he, his pulse started again. Now, this sounds kind of crazy um, because it is. But you can just look it up wherever you want to in any news source. And, and I mean, it's well documented in the news. And, and it wasn't like they were even doing CPR or anything else on Josh Smith at that point. They'd stopped everything because they, they knew he was gone. But then as she was praying, one of the doctors called out, we have a pulse. We have a pulse. And his heart started beating again on its own. And then there was concern about, okay, brain damage. I mean, nearly an hour without any uh, blood flowing. And granted, he had been in the ice water, which um, can really help, um, help minimize brain damage in that circumstance. But even still, doctors say, you know, we don't know how he's going to respond. The odds are not good that he's going to come out of this well. But amazingly, now here about a month later, he is almost fully recovered. He just has a little bit of therapy left just to help his fingers and, and um, lower extremities work fully functioning again. But still, I mean, pretty much a full recovery. A miracle. Listen to how the doctors who were there in the room performing CPR, trying to revive him, how they describe it. One doctor um, who was right there, he had to document all this stuff. And here's one of the things that he said in his documentation. He said, this is a doctor. He said, his heart was jump-started by the Holy Spirit listening to the request of his praying mother. I mean, pretty cool. Answer to prayer. The other doctor who was there said, it's a bona fide miracle. It's a bona fide miracle. I mean, there's, there's no other way to describe what happened. So it's really, really cool when we can see answers to prayer like that. And that's what Jesus is talking about here, that when we pray, God delights in answering prayer. That's the, real, that's the message of this passage. Now, as I was studying this passage this week, there were a few questions that kept coming into my mind, that kept tugging at me. Maybe you have questions as well. Specifically, there were three questions. Two of the questions I would categorize as haunting questions. One of the questions was more of an intellectual intrigue type of question. Now, I want to spend a few minutes here addressing these questions. One of the questions which very well might be coming to your mind is why are there so many seemingly unanswered prayers? Now, on one hand, it makes sense that if we pray something that is uh, misguided or something that is with wrong motives, it makes sense that God would say no to that type of prayer. But why is it that there are so many prayers that it sure seems like they're legitimate, good things that God would want to say yes to, yet he doesn't, at least not in our timetable? Why is that the case? I mean, I think, for instance, even our prayer emails that go out on a regular basis from the church, if you aren't on the prayer email list, you can sign up on the connection card and we'll get you on there. But I think about the content of those prayer emails, just so many things that it seems like, God, would not you want to work here? Children, 
young and adult children who are dealing with serious health issues or cancers. Um, I think of um, Rick Wolf, who many of you know, have known personally for a long time. Um, I've known him for just a couple months, but I've really enjoyed getting to know him. Deep heart for God. But a couple weeks ago, he started, uh, a while ago, he started having some health issues, and his health has really gone downhill just in the last week or two. And now, um, with these health issues, he's in ICU in critical but stable condition. And I remember praying about a week and a half ago that the doctors have wisdom to accurately diagnose what's taking place so that they can um, address it. And we thought there was great news that came from one of the doctors. They identified what it was, and we were praising God for this, this accurate diagnosis that we'd been praying for. And then a few days later, a doctor walked into the room and shocked everyone by saying, you know what, we were wrong. It's not that after all. We have no idea what's going on. And as he sits in the hospital now, they still don't really know what's going on. It's scary. And you look at that situation, and like I said, I know that for some of you, you've known him for a long time. And so this is a personal matter, and it's, it's like, God, would you not want to work in this situation to allow either a miracle or an accurate diagnosis and treatment to, to restore his health? Now, that's certainly still what we are hoping and praying for. We're certainly not beyond that point of no return But at the same time, you look at the situation like this and you're like, God, please work here. Why aren't you working in this situation right now? And I think we can all think of any number of other circumstances too where we're just like, God, I don't understand this. Why aren't you answering this prayer with the affirmative, even as you say here in Matthew 7 that you will? But one of the things we have to recognize is that there are no unanswered prayers. God answers every prayer. It's just that he answers prayers differently. Not every prayer is a yes automatically. He's not some genie in the bottle who just grants any wish you want. He's not a cosmic vending machine that you just put in the money and then what you order comes out right away. There are times that God's answer to prayer is no because we ask with wrong motives, because it's a request that's outside of God's will, because God knows it won't be the best thing for us or it won't bring him glory. But we do have to recognize that when God says no to one of our requests, we are in very good company. I mean, there have been a lot of great men and women of God down through the centuries who God has said no to. I think of King David. King David's son was very sick. King David was praying that God would heal him. God said no. I think of the Apostle Paul. I mean, he wrote a third of the New Testament, greatest missionary of all time. Second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul prays multiple times that God will remove from him this thorn in the flesh, this, this ailment that is causing him significant pain and even embarrassment. But God says, no, I'm not going to remove that, but my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Even think of the time that God said no to his son, Jesus. Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is praying right before he, he's going to be crucified. He's praying, God, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He didn't, he, from a human perspective, he was fearful of going through um, what he was going to go through. I, I think not so much because of the physical pain of, of crucifixion, but because of the spiritual anguish of, of absorbing God's wrath that we deserve on the cross. But God said, no, you have to go through that. So we are in very good company when God does say no. There are other times when God says, slow down. 
to our prayers. We, we so easily try to jump ahead of God's timetable, and God says, no, you need to slow down a little bit. We have some other things we're working out here, and there might even be character issues that he needs to work out in us in the process. So God does have legitimate reasons for saying no or for saying slow down. And we have to recognize that he is still trustworthy and he is still faithful and that he has bigger purposes than we do oftentimes for the circumstances in our lives. There's a, a marriage book by Gary Thomas called Sacred Marriage. And, and I think it, a phrase in there really helps us understand all of life. Gary Thomas says, God didn't design marriage to make us happy, but to make us holy. Now, we want happiness in things. We want comfort. We want things to be enjoyable and easy. But God has bigger purposes than that. God is trying to refine our character, to make us holy, to, to draw us closer to him, to help us let go of earthly treasures and cling to the eternal treasures. And that process is not always easy. But we have to recognize that when God says no, it is for our good and for his glory. And we can trust that because of who God is. He is our loving, gracious, sovereign, heavenly father. I think of another quote from A.W. Tozier. It's a longer quote. Uh, in the middle of it has a phrase that we may not use that much anymore today because this was written uh, 75 years ago. But I think it's still very relevant. I want to read it for us now. A.W. Tozer says that to believe actively that our Heavenly Father constantly spreads around us providential circumstances that work for our present good and our everlasting well-being brings to the soul a veritable benediction. That's the phrase we may not use it as much. What it's, uh, what it's talking about is just when we recognize that God is, is sovereign and is working things out for our good, both temporally and especially eternally, it brings our, our soul tremendous blessing. He says, most of us go through life praying a little, planning a little, jockeying for position, hoping but never quite being certain of anything, and always secretly afraid that we will miss the way. This is a tragic waste of truth and never gives rest to the heart. It's a tragic waste of truth because the truth is that God is loving, he is gracious, he is kind, he is wise, he is powerful, he's sovereign. It is a tragic waste of truth if we think that just by a little bit of praying here, a little bit of planning here, we're going to manipulate our circumstances um, to work things out for the better, but all the time we're eaten up by anxiety and worry about the future. Instead, we should cling on to the truth of who God is and trust him, even when circumstances don't make that much sense. So that's the first question of why there are so many seemingly unanswered prayers. But in the midst of difficult circumstances, we need to remember God is still trustworthy and still in control. A second question, which is more of the intellectual question that comes to my mind, is why is this passage in this part of the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, it's kind of one of those um, questions that me with a mind who went to seminary, I'm like, okay, how does this really flow together here? Because there are other parts of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about prayer. And here, I mean, it doesn't really seem to connect that well with like what came right before it or what comes right after it. So why is it right here? Well, I think the reason that it's right here is because Jesus is drawing the Sermon on the Mount to a conclusion pretty soon. And the Sermon on the Mount really raises a very high bar for God's standards for how we are to live in his kingdom. And it's hard not to be very humbled and feel very inadequate when you read the Sermon on the Mount. Because if you've been paying attention all, you probably feel like, you know what? How is it possible to go through life with, without any lust, 
without any uncontrolled anger, without any hypocrisy, without any dishonesty or bending the truth? How, how do I not worry? Jesus is saying, don't worry. How do I get rid of all that worry in my life? Or, you know what? It's really hard to let go of all those earthly treasures that Jesus is saying, let go of those and invest only in heavenly treasures. Sermon on the Mount is raising such a high bar that, is, that it makes us feel very inadequate. And I think that is one of the reasons why here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is pointing to prayer and what, what prayer does. Because prayer gives us supernatural power to live out what Jesus is calling us to do. It is impossible to live out the calling of the Sermon on the Mount on our own power and wisdom. But Jesus makes that power possible. And one of the ways we see that is in, um, in Luke's version of the same teaching over in Luke chapter 11. Um, I'm going to read a section of it, verses 11 through 13. I think you'll hear uh, some parallels, but then one key addition that Matthew did not include in his account. Matthew 11, or Luke 11, verse 11 says, Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Sound familiar? Verse 13, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So here, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, how when we ask God, he will send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us when we come to faith in Christ to empower us to live the, the life that God's calling us to live. We can't do it on our, on our own. But here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know what? Recognize you can't do it on your own, but seek God. He will give you the spiritual power and provision you need to live the life that he is calling you to live. And this is why this passage is in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the third question, which is another haunting question, gets a little bit deeper. Do we have a passion to seek God? Do we have a passion to seek God? Because in this passage, it's talking about ask, seek, knock, pursue God, lay your request before him. We have to recognize that the way God has designed us, he's designed us to be in an intimate, vibrant relationship with him. This is how he made us. One of my favorite quotes comes from author C.S. Lewis. He said, Just as a car is created to run on gasoline as its fuel, we are created to run on God as our fuel. We need God as our fuel in life. And you think about a car, you don't just put in a few drops of fuel and hope that will get you to your destination. No, you, you, you fill up the tank because you know that fuel has to continue to be delivered to the engine in order to power that car to get to where you're going. You need a continuous supply of fuel. It's the same with God, that we need that continuous supply of God's power and that comes through a life-giving relationship with him. And, and prayer is really that, that fuel line that gets his power into our lives. But oftentimes, rather than a fuel line, we treat our relationship with God and prayer more like a spare tire. Where, you know what? You need the spare tire when things are going wrong. When you have a problem, then you turn to prayer. But when prayer is used only as a spare tire, it doesn't work very well. And similar to how many times when you go to need a spare tire, your spare tire doesn't work well either. I remember a few years ago, I was riding with a friend to work, and he had a flat tire on the side of um, a busy highway in Chicago. We pulled over to the side, pulled out his uh, spare tire. It was flat. And that's what happens. I encourage you, check the air in your spare tire. Because it's a very common experience that if you haven't checked that for a number of years, it very well could be flat and it'll let you down when you need it. 
But for many people, they treat prayer as a spare tire. It's something you need in an emergency, but you know what? You don't use it all that much. And so then when you come to use that uh, prayer of a, uh, prayer as a spare tire, it doesn't work very well because you aren't used to using it. Now, the call for prayer is, is a part of our lives continually. Pray without ceasing. That's just a part of the fabric of our lives. And so then when a request comes up, then it's just a natural part of our relationship with God. It's not something special. It's not something unique or strange. But it's just in the natural course of our lives that, you know what, the request comes up. But, but prayer is so much more than just asking God for things. I mean, imagine what it would be like to be a parent and have a child who their only real communication with you is asking you things, demanding that you give them things. That's not going to be much of a healthy relationship, is it? No, a healthy relationship between a parent and a child, um, you're sharing so much of life together. You're sharing joys. You're sharing challenges. You're doing fun things together. You're, you're, you're discussing how do we handle this type of thing. You're laughing together. You're sharing meals together. And that's the way it is to be in our relationship with God as well, that he is a part of everything we are doing. And then the requests just come as a natural part of that relationship. And the cool thing is that we have a heavenly father who can provide for us very richly. But he intends to provide in the context of a broader, all-consuming life relationship with him. And in the context of that relationship, he enjoys answering prayers. Over the last few days, I've been looking through some of my old prayer journals. I write out a lot of my prayers in prayer journals, just in paragraph form or in page form or sentence form or whatever. It's just kind of a neat thing to do that helps me um, pray with God. And I was looking back at one journal randomly from 2002 when I was still in college. And I want to read you just something that really stuck out to me. I wrote, Lord, I almost can't help but laugh. Do you ever stop answering prayers? It's not always in my timetable, but it's always the best. And I just went on just to reflect on how there was this prayer that I saw God answer. It wasn't even for me. It was for one of my friends. But it's this idea of, God, do you ever stop answering prayers? And I was reflecting on that time in my life and just how prayer was really just a continuous thing. It was just a conversation with God throughout the day about all kinds of different things. I mean, it wasn't just asking God for things. It was just this life-giving, ongoing conversation about all kinds of things. And that's how God intends us to live. And so that's why we have to ask, do we have a passion to really seek God with all of our lives? Or is it just as a spare tire when we have a need? I think that when we get to heaven, we may very well be surprised and perhaps dismayed that we had so much power available to us through prayer who we made so little usage of it. I want to return to this date, February 4th, 2004. It required that I took initiative in order to get the ball rolling for that relationship. And it's, it's similar oftentimes in our relationship with God that he, he's asking us to ask him, to, to take our request to him, and then he will respond. Where would I be today if I didn't ask Shelley, if I didn't take that initiative in that relationship? I don't know. Odds are good I probably wouldn't even be here as pastor of freedom just when I look at all those different things God was working together. But God has worked immensely through that. But it's the same thing in in our relationship with God, that if we are faithful to ask him and to pursue him, I believe he has more in store for us than we can possibly imagine. I want to close by reading an excerpt from my prayer journal on that February 4th of 2004 after I met with Shelley. Um, starts out in a very memorable way. This is why I remember it. Here's how I start out. 
holy cow, Lord, tonight was awesome. <laughs> and I say, wow, holy cow, this is in parentheses, holy cow is a strange, almost heretical way to begin a prayer, but the expression fits the occasion. I said, I'm so amazed at how you have been orchestrating everything, how Shelley and I both began praying about each other so long ago, how we prayed many of the same things, and even how she was praying about this topic this morning right when I called, how small my faith is, and how evidently your hand has been at work in this for so long. I mean, it was, it was very eye-opening in an amazing way just to see how God had been orchestrating everything for our relationship through prayer. We even began praying about a relationship with each other on the exact same day, nine months earlier. Prayer had bathed the whole thing, and we saw God's blessing through it all. It's so cool when you are taking things to God and then see him bringing all those things together in his timetable. And what a blessing it is that we have a loving Heavenly Father, that we, we are weak. We are just little children who don't really bring a lot to the table in and of ourselves. But we can run wholeheartedly and confidently into the embrace of our Heavenly Father and trust that He is going to take care of us, even if the circumstances don't always make sense, that He is still taking care of us. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you are trustworthy. We look at our lives and we are weak. I mean, at times we feel like we are strong, like we are influential. But Lord, at the same time, there are those things that we run up against in our lives that just show that, you know what? <laughs> There's not a whole lot that we have to offer. There's not a lot that we can do in a lot of circumstances. And Lord, I pray that you will use those circumstances that are very challenging and stretching for us to drive us into your arms, that we will stay there, and that you will become an intimate part of our lives day in, day out, moment in, moment out so that when we bring a request to you, it will be in the broader context of a love, trusting relationship with you. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.